This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. Welcome back um, to the next session. As I said uh, uh, earlier, we now turn our attention to energy justice and industry competitiveness. Um, we, we say here it's a mutually beneficial partnership. I'd much rather say, you know, are they mutually exclusive or are they completely compatible? Um, and I think we, we have an interesting panel of speakers for you in that regard. And without further ado, I'm going to move to Stephanie. Your executive director at change.org. Given the work you're doing at the moment, right, um, how can we... There's a lot of talk about um, Ursula van Leyden's approach to a Green Deal. From your perspective and the work you've done, how, how, how can we create a people-led Green Deal? Thank you. Um, so indeed, I'm at change.org, which has uh, 70 million users across Europe, and I'm, I'm the executive director for Italy, um, where indeed climate change hasn't been uh, you know, a, a top-tier um, topic for, the, for, for quite a few years. Now things are changing a bit, um, and the political situation is obviously very unstable. It's, it's almost a, a joke. Um, and so the question for me was, how, how can one um, you know, think about uh, <clears throat> delivering on the, the climate um, necessities um, of, of uh, CO2 uh, emissions reductions, and at the same time uh, make it make it palatable in a country that, that has basically ignored um, climate action. Um, and and for me, I think you know, taking inspiration certainly from the from the Green New Deal in uh, in the U.S. Um, you know now they're having to do massive disobedience to try to push uh, to push those policies forward. Um, I think it's you know for me the build is to have a, a mass consultation where you, you put basically two questions in, and unleash people's creativity towards trying to figure out how do we massively diminish inequality and massively reduce emissions at the same time um, and, and have, have a really an open um, and, and honest discussion across society. It's not something that, um, that we've done and it creates then I think much more um, uh, so, social consensus around finding those solutions. Um, and for me, part of the, the, the Green New Deal plan would need to be also um, entrenching certain mechanisms uh, in, in communities for dealing with all of the inevitable conflicts that arise um, so that that's actually built into the framework. Uh, that, we, you know, that, that we actually do some of the, the deep work of, of uh, real democratization and representation that we've ignored um, you know, for, for, for many years really. Um, and I think that the, it's, you know, it's, it's important to talk about just transition, but it's, it's certainly not enough. I mean, we're going to have winners and losers from climate change itself, um, just as we are from the transition. And you know, one, we, we, need, we need to have a, a, you know, an, an empathetic mentality of, um, of uh, trying to meet everyone's needs for a dignified life and not prioritizing sort of one group of losers over, over another. I mean, if you're a farmer and you're agriculturally um, you know, bereft because of because of climate change. You know, your 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 needs are no less important than those of a of a fossil fuel worker who's who's going to be called on um, to to change livelihoods during a transition. Um, and I think within you know within within Europe, as was mentioned uh, you know, yesterday at the dinner, the the EIB is a it's 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 a public bank. It's public money, um, and we need to we need to um, invest heavily in in uh, in public goods um, and thinking about how how um, uh, to accelerate this transition through investments that, that, that meet both of these needs, reducing inequality and also, um, and, and also reducing emissions. 
um, you know, climate change is, is as much a symptom of, of a huge historic problem of, of inequality, um, you know, patriarchy and, uh, and, and colonialism um, as it is, as it is um, a problem in and of itself. Um, I would also say that, um, that, it, that, that climate change, or that uh, dealing with climate change, it doesn't need to be scary. I, I very much agree with the framing of it being an opportunity um, you know, for, for um, better transport, reduced um, energy costs, or at least stabilized costs, much greater equality, um, um, health benefits, um, you know, and then, and then people would have more time on their hands uh, and, and uh, more efficient housing and so on. And I think that these are, these are a lot of aspects that we need to, um, uh, to, to discuss and sort of crow about much more prominently. Um, so that people are invited in to this to this vision, which doesn't need to be only scary, um, um, but is but but can also actually be very very appealing for for most people. Um, re uh, removing this this sort of um, dream of of eternal growth and thinking instead about what gives people um, a sense of meaning and uh, and and a sense of hope in their in their normal lives. Um, I would add that um, I think that this exercise of, of going through a, a consultation for a Green New Deal is something that, uh, that every country and every region um, should, really, should really think about. I'm also working with, um, with, uh, with, with NGOs and, and uh, policymakers in, in Africa to think about what a Green New Deal would mean there um, so that one, 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 one region or one country's transition isn't coming at the expense of, of another's. Um, and my, my final sort of plea to the... You know, to policymakers is really to think about how um, to work with campaigning organizations, um, you know, to work with mobilization organizations, so that the, this this idea of political acceptability um, is uh, you know that it's that it's radically altered. You know, you you don't need to operate in isolation and you know listening listening only to the um, to the, to the lobbyists who happen to be around, um, but drawing power really by working hand in hand with. Um, with with mobilizers and with uh, and with campaigners, um, so that what really reflects the public interest is is uh, what um, what is the easiest option for you for you as um, as as uh, decision makers um, to act on as well. Stephanie, thank you very much for that. Where have you seen this work? This is a really challenging question, I know. No, where I'm you can see, you can point to actually, we can, um, you can give an example of where policymakers and civil society organisations and that kind of human spirit engagement has worked. I mean, I can, I can think of many, many instances, you know, where, where and I think that's, that's often policymaking and campaigning at its best, where, you're, where you know, the <coughs> public is empowering representatives who are then able to, you know, to stand in parliament or wherever, and you know, with with um, a million signatures in their hands, as opposed to being you know individuals who are um, you know who are who are screaming by themselves, um, and I, we've you know we've seen that on, on on every conceivable issue from you know from foreign policy to to environment to you know, to women's rights and so on. Okay, all right, thank you very much, um, Mark. I'm going to move to you, um, you and environment. Um, from your broader perspective, if you think in terms of like, you know, governments across the piece, what do you think are the issues um, that we are, that are serving as obstacles in making urgent progress um, on the twin goals of energy or a just transition and competitiveness? So I, I do sit in, and work in a UN organization, mm. so we tend to frame, frame the issues in, in terms of consensus in 
bringing about um, alignment of thought and action. Uh, I, I fear that we're, well, I'm a bit torn as an individual and I think we have a little bit of a schizophrenia in our own work because we would like to see definitely more action and activism is good. But activism that, that kind of demonizes the opponent, I think, is a barrier to, to reaching consensus. Um, I don't know of any coal miner that would wish their child to become a coal miner, you know, carrying on their, their, their father's legacy, for example. Mm. And I think when we do that to either individuals or communities or countries that have um, put time and energy and effort into giving us, uh, through the use of fossil fuels, the extraction and, and, and use of fossil fuels, a, a kind of quality of life that in retrospect was, was built on a shaky, a shaky foundation. Um, maybe we, should, we need to appreciate those efforts and somehow make them part of a systemic change rather than demonizing them. And, and I use that word intentionally because I think that it's, it's getting a little bit strident at times and what we really need to do collectively is, and it is part of the just transition, is to sort of co-opt those who need to change as well and, and be more persuasive and make it easier for them to see, see the advantages or the necessity of change and make it, make it possible. So for me, the, the energy incumbents, um, you know, we throw around the word, but it, it's not only companies, but it's the communities, it's the individuals who have labored or continue to work in, in the, the uh, existing energy industry, in a sense, and they block change. I mean, we're all aware of that. Um, one, it was enlightening to me several years ago when someone said, you know, when faced with a win-win situation and you wonder why is it not moving forward, it's actually that when you peel away other layers of the onion, it's win-win, lose-lose-lose, and it's the three that lose that prevent you from moving politically uh, in most cases. So we need, we need companies to get on board, we need individuals, we need, we need the communities to sort of see that there is a, a, a different future, that it's not bleak. So blocking change is one thing, but, but as well, if you, if you look at the magnitude of the change that's required, um, we do require the skills of the existing energy in, industry, I believe. I mean, they're good at raising capital, or Fulton made that point. They have technological skills that are in demand. They are good at project management. Um, and at the individual level, people have necessary skills. Now, retraining might not be easiest thing, and, and I absolutely res respect the point made earlier that you can't, can't just do retraining. It's got to be retraining you know, that's sensible and, and sort of fits into a new vision of the economy. But I think, um, just to sum up, that it's a barrier is, is this sort of polarization of the need for action, and we need to be smarter about how we co-opt um, as part of a us transition, co-op those who are resisting change. You didn't say much about technology, or and, and my, my challenge also is that what do you from your where you the vantage point that you have on this agenda? Where do you draw co uh, uh, strength and confidence that things are moving in the right direction, with the right pace? Yeah, in the last session, there, there were a number of references to the decreases in cost of, of renewable energy. Um, I think. Anyone who watches the numbers is sort of amazed by how the predictions of the of the ramp up 
of renewable energy are consistently underestimated by even by organizations like Greenpeace, uh, you know, proved to be pessimistic in terms of their vision of how fast things would change. So that's very encouraging. Um, another area, and again, a point made about the importance of energy efficiency, um, the growth of demand for refrigeration and air conditioning is, is rather frightening if one looks at projections for India and China. In many emerging markets, there are absolutely no standards for the efficiency. Um, so the, back, back to sort of the, uh, the um, I think Mark Fulton called them performance standards. So they, they don't exist, which means you can sell in many African countries um, equipment that would have been banned in Europe on the basis of its performance you know, decades ago. So the, the technologies are largely there. And again, it goes back to the question of are the government policies sort of requiring the use of good technologies? In many cases, they're cheaper. Mm. It's sort of benevolent uh, policy making that says this is good for you as an individual, it's good for society as a whole. If you look at the avoided cost of infrastructure and where that money could be deployed more usefully. Mm, absolutely. And I, I was struck uh, just this year when, when the heat wave hit Europe, how many fans were sold and how many people are now thinking next year of installing air conditioning in their houses, which you'd never thought of in Northern Europe. Uh, thank you. Maria, I'm going to turn to you. Uh, Member of the Parliament, uh, European Parliament, and, you know, you sit on the, you know, the committee that uh, looks at uh, issues of industry research, etc., and energy. Um, what are the people and private sector dimensions that we need to think about in the context of a just transition? Well, I think that uh, everything depends on uh, the political will that we will have during this mandate. And allow me to, to give some so-called historical data concerning especially the establishment of Just Transition Fund. We have asked for the establishment of Just Transition Fund approximately two years ago. It was an idea coming from Professor Buzek, former Prime Minister of Poland. And we asked uh, in the Parliament with a vast majority for five billion for start, concerning 41 regions in the EU, they are fully dependent on coal. The issue for this just transition fund is to facilitate them to transform their economy and to reskill and upskill their workers. And allow me to, to let the phrase from Marcus that he said that we cannot see, we do not know any, any child who is uh, dreaming to become a mine, a coal miner. On the contrary, I think that this is a job, a profession by need, not by choice. Mm -hmm. So allow me to give you some kind of, of data that it is important to understand the scale of the, of the issue that we will face during the, the transition of the economies. Allow me to remind you that Germany has already announced that uh, the Lignite plants will be switched off, all the Lignite plants will be switched off, the coal plants will be switched off by 2038. But Greece is more ambitious, and the new government has announced that the lignite plants will be off by 2028. And now the numbers. Coal activities offer direct employment to around 237,000 people across Europe. 78% of, of these jobs are in the mining sector. And it's estimated that around 53,000 people worked in coal fire plants in the EU. These are the numbers. And now we will discuss about the money. Because we have the numbers, we don't have the money, 
and we don't even have specific plans concerning the 41 regions in transition. Starting with the money, it is important to allocate not only the 5 billion additionally by grants to the new multi-annual financial framework. Mrs. Foden-Lyon has already promised that we will establish a just transition fund, but she cannot, she cannot get into details. Into details will not given and have not given by also the, 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 the commissioner designate for energy, Mrs. Smith. I asked her, she cannot deny to say that uh, we will go ahead with uh, just transition fund, but I cannot give you some further details on it. So it is important first to allocate the money, additional money. Second, to have more money by leverage, money coming from uh, European investment banks, because my European investment bank will be transform itself into a climate bank. And then plans, specific plans. How shall we transform the economies of these 41 uh, regions? How can we upskill and reskill workers about 50? Do you believe that a, a worker, a, a coal miner, could, within a year training, become an IT professional, an IT expert? This is a real question. Mm -hmm. So we need to take people on board, and I will insist on it. It is important to, to use the so-called soft instruments. We, ha we will have campaigns. We will have educational programs. We will have a new model of, of investments and a new model of economy. And we have to start working with the people in order to explain to them that transforming the economy into a more climate-friendly, into a circular economy, it will create jobs and growth. No one will left behind because at the same time we have just transition fund that we will facilitate the people to go ahead. Thank you. So, I'm not sure whether what we, from what you've said that we should be uh, hugely confident about the new mandate's approach to the Green Deal. Um, but we heard from the, the, the morning panel, actually there is enough money in the market. It's about how you align public and private value uh, around money. The numbers you quote around um, you know, the potential joblessness that will take place, Surely, that's just a question of planning. And I don't mean to undermine it. It's a matter of planning and being really coherent about these are the areas where we know we're going to have a huge negative impact on joblessness. And you can engage, if you wish to, in uh, retraining in a different way or providing alternatives. But are you saying that you're, um, you're concerned that that's not going to be possible? I think that is it just political will that you're concerned about more? I think that we have to engage not only the, the national governments, but also the local authorities and mm -hmm. the local communities. This mm. is the first step. Mm. And of course, we have to explain what will the Green Deal will give you, give them some kind of opportunities. And of course, what kind of opportunities can we provide with the Just Transition Fund? And allow me to, to focus on, on circularity. Because yesterday we had a very interesting discussion aside in the European Parliament concerning bulky waste. Do you know in this room that approximately 60% of the bulky waste are landfill? Uh, landfill. Mm. Landfill. Every day we landfill 60% of bulky waste. Mm. We can reuse it, repair it, and we can create jobs through circularity. This is just one of the examples that we can offer. Mm. To the, to, the, to the communities that they are looking for new jobs, 
new jobs based on industry, new jobs based on the way that they, they can work. Because we cannot transform them into uh, within a year by giving them just a seminar. And secondly, I would like to speak for Western Macedonia because it is, it is one of the 41 regions fully dependent on coal and only ignite and race. Mm -hmm. We can maintain the, the, the form of economy that they used to know. I mean, we can create their energy center. Not an energy center dependent on lignite, but an energy center dependent on gas as a transition coil. Mm. An energy center that it will facilitate them to keep uh, uh, the way that they used to work. Mm. And of course, we can install a lot of uh, renewable energy uh, uh, sources, but it will not give the amount of jobs that, the, that we will need. So we have to transform the economy by giving them the, a way out. And the way out could be a way out of, uh, of traditional culture, a, a way out of uh, traditional culture, uh, a, a way out of traditional jobs that they used to know. Thank you. Any reactions to what you've heard before I move on to the other speakers? Just to have a pause for a moment if you've got any particular strongly held view on what you've heard so far. Or any particular question? No? Really? Okay. Let's, let's take another bite of that after we heard the next two speakers then. Let's move on to Gilles um, from NG. Um. Ah, okay. Sorry, I'm, Sorry from I ignored the panel. Sorry, go on. Um, I, I did just want to add, I mean, I think that, that um, again, you know, this, this question of what's, of, of what's politically possible, um, in, in any kind of transition, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's going to be very difficult for some, for some people, potentially, if, if we structure things in the same, in the same way we currently do. Um, but, but I think that there are, you know, there, there, there are infinite opportunities. Right now, I mean, we have millions of people who are living um, in deep precariousness across, across Europe and across the world. That's why we're seeing revolutions break out everywhere. And I think, you know, we should, we should look at Fridays for Future to some extent in that, uh, in that lens as well. Um, and it's, you know, we might say the only, you know, we, we see the only option as, uh, as, as moving towards gas in order to, in order to um, um, find decent jobs for, for people. But I think we can be, you know, far more creative. And I think that, that we need to understand that it's not just the policymakers who have, um, you know, who have the answers and who are, who are going to be able to, to identify the best solutions. I think we need to turn much more to communities and find ways of engaging people in redefining what um, a climate safe life and a dignified life means. Right now we're living at, you know, we're, we're using three Earths worth of materials right now. And, you know, we as Europe, we're, what, what are we consuming? I mean, we're basically outsourcing all of our emissions to, to China, buying, you know, from, from their manufacturing. Um, our carbon footprint is much, much greater than we're actually acknowledging. I think there's a lot more that we can do. And, you know, I, I really invite us to, to think about what is, what is actually necessary, not what is, you know, politically feasible, and to show real leadership trying to open those spaces and provoke those fora for conversation um, so that we can get to the heart of the issue. Thank you. And I think cities clearly do play a major role in this in terms of, you know, in terms of the carbon footprint, but also the size and volume of population. And cities could be at the forefront of some of this in terms of modelling what you're describing is power sharing and problem solving with community, because uh, some you know, magic can come out of that. But um, hopefully, let's see, let's see what people think if they do have a view. Gilles Engie, um, how, how are you uh, 
planning to maintain your competitive edge, if you like, and uh, whilst maintaining your ambitious, you know, carbon zero, you know, uh, uh, transition? Okay, first, thank you for the question. I want to apologize because uh, Olivier Biancarelli couldn't be Indeed, here. Indeed, thank you for doing that. No problem, I so yeah. I will try to, to compensate. <laughs> My name is Gilles Bourguin and I'm a, a deputy CEO of Tractable, which is an engineering company of NG. And I used to build, uh, to co-build the strategy that was unveiled earlier this year. Uh, to answer to your question, I want to come back to a fact that really impacted me in my personal life. Mm -hmm. It was uh, 20 years ago. I was 21 as, uh, when uh, this lady started uh, her move uh, uh, on climate change. And basically, I did a study on what would be the impact of zero carbon transition of Europe uh, for an industrial. And I was shocked at that time because the curve was like this and we needed to do this. It's as simple as that. And I went to a prospective and I said, but how can we make that competitive? And he just asked me the question, what do you mean by competitive? Mm -hmm. Is it short-term competitiveness, long-term competitiveness, economical? Uh, well, he opened a number of questions. So, but I will try to answer to your question because uh, to say that today, in the two-day framework, it's possible mm -hmm. to do much more than what we do. I will give a testimony of what we did at NG at our own level and to explain a few ideas we have in order to boost that zero carbon transition at our client level. And then, this will not allow to do this. This will allow to do this, maybe. Then we need to push the boundaries, and I will give a few ideas on that. So first, it's possible, and NG, uh, three years ago, put this climate uh, energy transition challenge at the heart of, of its strategy. What did we do in three years? We removed 20% of our portfolio of activities, coal, ENP, LNG, all which was not compatible with uh, energy transition. So uh, our turnover went from 66 billion to 60 billion, because we recovered a bit with other activities. And we recovered organic growth, because three years ago, four years ago, it was minus 10. Now we are at plus 5%. Mm -hmm. That was a, a first indicator. But we increased the profitability because we kept the same net results, 2.5 billion euros. And to do that, it's very close to what you just said. It's a big transformation. It's a business transformation to do some choices, but it's also an organizational transformation to be more local, closer to the cities, closer to our territories. It's a cultural transformation. It's a leadership transformation. And, and so that the engagement index of our people that we had to train to refocus increase. And this is what, what was done. So, and, and overall, we divided by two our CO2 emissions for that three, three years look back, which is still a first step, not, not, the big, not the old step. So we have a lot to do more, but it's just the first testimony. Second, for our clients. And I want to go back to the preliminary panel. It was said 98% of people recognize that climate is an issue, but they look at industrialists and, and all local authorities and they say, I cannot move if they don't move. Mm. This is exactly the diagnostic we did. We believe that our own contribution is to really push any competitive zero carbon transition for communities and cities, industrialists, and uh, properties. And to do that, we need to think 
differently. We need to deeply understand the client, not sizing big infrastructure very far away, but to be at their premises. And we have the chance to have 100,000 people out of our 160,000 people who are daily at the premises of our client. And then we need to assess what is their needs, exactly need. What is their unique equation? And we need to find the conditions so that money, which is available, flows into that business cases. This is what we call asset uh, energy as a service uh, assets or asset-based um, services, meaning we help to create that conditions. This is the sense of our uh, new world. And this is true in Europe, but also in Africa mm -hmm. or uh, everywhere in the world. Uh, so uh, it's possible, we saw that, it's possible with our client. I can give some examples if you want later on. And then three, how to push the boundaries. I think that we all conclude that any of us has to do jobs, um, the so 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 society, the, I would say the financing, because we also need to train them, because they are thinking short term. We need to train investors to go to longer term. Industrialists, as we are, uh, regulation. In particular, I want to say, and to disagree, you ask us to disagree, uh, that it's not only about electrification, it's energy overall, mm -hmm. uh, including, I think, multi-energy analysis, including gas. And we believe in green gas. We need to push for that. We believe we need to push any, any energy efficiency business models that can be done. This is an important point as far as the public authorities. And industries, we have a, a big role to play, and that's my conclusion. Uh, we have to take some bets, but it's, uh, I think, on the long-term competitiveness, this is a winning bet. Um, so I think that at the, at the end, this is uh, my conclusion. We still have a lot to do at our side also. Mm. Virgil, sounds too good to be true. <clears throat> Really? Uh, Tell what, me. Yeah. What, what were the conditions internally that enabled this kind of approach that you described, that, you know, the compelling business case that you can do some of these things and maintain your profit margin? Uh, and, you know, so what was it inside your company that enabled this to happen? Because I'm sure pe I'm fascinated, but, but, other people are fascinated by that. Okay, so, so if you look at the, at the fundamentals, um, you know, an industrialist, he thinks rationally. If we want to be competitive, we need to be embedded by the trends that are shaping our world. Uh, I conducted a, a kind of, uh, an, um, I would say, um, collective intelligence survey involving 15,000 of our employees in analysis of the megatrends. And basically, we believe that uh, going to where the trend is, is the best way to recover organic growth. And, and we, we went out of the businesses which have negative organic growth. So now the problem is not to say what do we stop, if even we have to stop a number of things, is where do we put our priority because there are much more priorities, yeah. uh, opportunities that are emerging. But it was not easy, that's what I said. It was, I was, uh, it's, it's not an easy journey because yeah. you have to tell to people sometimes we have to close some doors. You have to work with the European councils in order to, to co-build the trajectory together. You have to, to reorganize the company. Mm. You have to build the collective. So it's, it's not an easy game. And, and uh, that, so maybe it was too, too beautiful. But <laughs> yeah, I think at the end, uh, I feel that, that the, the, the first result is here. Right. And we are just the beginning. Tell us, give us some examples of how you've taken consumers along with you and uh, thought about justness in that. Okay, I will give you one example, which uh, an example I incubated at Tractable. Okay. Uh, basically, one day one guy came and said, I want to build a, 
um, you know, bung how do you say that? Uh, I don't know how to say that in English. Um, uh, you know, we, for Africa, mm -hmm. I want to put panels, solar panels in a container with battery, etc. And I have a business case for, for Africa. And then we started looking at that. At the end, what is the business model we built? Mm. It's not this one. Is we look at really the needs of the people. We invest with them in the energy usages, meaning in the fridge, in the very efficient, in the TV, very efficient in the... And then we build the infrastructure to only deliver what is very required and we use mobile money in order to be able to measure and to give the right energy at the right moment. So, you know, it's a holistic approach. And at the end, the consumer who was paying a lot for oil, um, I would say, uh, lamps, or at the end, we need to create a winning business case. And it was, this is an example, but I could give you another example in developed countries, for example, in Ohio State universities, mm -hmm. where they said, okay, I want to do zero carbon, but I don't know, this is not my job, and I, I don't have the money. So let's find a new business model where if we co-invest during 50 years, 5-0, and we do bring 30% of, of savings while, uh, while creating a competitive business case. So it's a new way of thinking, starting with the energy use and going to in the local investment in the university. So you see it's two examples, very different. Mm -hmm. But seeing that we, we thought we don't only change, and you spoke about circular economy, it's very local. Mm, please do. I would like to, to, to say a few words concerning consumer's model. I think that the consumer model is changing when we finally convince consumer that everything they buy, it finally depends on the quality of life that they have and it, it is finally affects the quality of life that they kids having. And allow me to use the example of single-use plastic. It is a success story coming from the previous mandate, but now it's continuing. And I think it is important to explain to the consumers that if you finally use a, a single-use plastic and finally throw it away, and uh, finally it, it, at the end it becomes marine litter, you will eat it. You will find it in your plate. And you have to choose fish or plastic. This is <laughs> one of the topics that I use when I, I started to, to communicate the, the directive of banning single-use plastic in Greece. At the same way, we can, we can finally start discussing on how can we decarbonize the energy by using the legislation as a driving force and by taking people on board with changing their consumer behavior. This is, I think, one of the main aspects that we have to work on during this mandate. No, sure, but as long as, I suppose, you don't do the, you know, blunt instrument approach as Macron did and got the, the reaction that he did, it's about a more sophisticated approach, surely, isn't it? About ensuring that whatever you're going to, what, whatever policy lever or regulatory uh, states, uh, approach you're going to take is really reflected in the impact it'll have on certain socioeconomic groups, the poorest um, and others. And I think somehow we sometimes get that wrong. I'm going to move to Olivier, um, um, from, from Vice, Executive Vice President RT. From your perspective, what are the implications of maintaining industrial competitiveness as we move in this uh, in a just transition approach or uh, energy transition approach? Um, I assume that... Um as it has been said, in fact, we, we have to redefine the frame for competitiveness. What is the value? And, uh, uh, and so, 
um, for us, uh, I can give an example about what is uh, the main principle of our approach. Uh, first, we do think that we need a systemic approach. The issue of the energy transition is no different from the one from the preservation of the biodiversity. It's no different from the, uh, um, to solve the uh, inequality, uh, social inequality, and uh, the um, preservation of, of the resources. And um, even if it has been said that we uh, have today a lot of technologies, for example, to develop renewables, my question is, is it based on predation, which is the main driver of the uh, existing uh, economy? We extract ma the, the materials, in fact, to, to manufacturers. Or we'd be able also to develop new economy based uh, on regeneration, circular economy. Um, we invest a lot. What I want to know when I buy a product, for example, through this act, perhaps today, Indirectly, I finance slavery in the Kivu when I buy them. I want to know that. So, for example, we are uh, committed to develop this uh, passport product with the industry or with the suppliers because we can be able to put another value that only the price. And so, to redefine the boundary of the competitiveness and try to uh, be extract from this uh, downsizing spiral that we uh, know for, for decades now. Uh, the second principle is uh, to promote temperance. We do believe, for example, that we have to be very active to cut the demand, and not only through efficiency, only addressing the issue of the behavior. It's not obvious for us. 75% of our revenue as a TSO is based on the volume. But we decided two years ago, committed uh, to promote action, in fact, to understand how to act to help the people to reduce the, the demand. And for example, uh, we signed um, a strategic agreement with an NGO, an NGO which name is Negawatt, which is fully committed to cut the demand by two. Uh, four or five years ago, it was not uh, imaginable for us to, 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 to work so closely with them. And so we tried to have a, uh, a fruitful exchange to well understand what they propose and helping them also to have better model, in fact, to be able to prove that something is, uh, is acceptable. And, and the last uh, is we need to develop new spaces for cooperation. As a TSO, for now, uh, almost 20 years, the grid in Europe, uh, an electric uh, grid, has been the place for competition. We forgot the fact that it can be also a place for cooperation. So we want to develop the competition. We can organize some spaces for competition and other for cooperation. And I can give you just a few examples of the way we try to do that. Uh, for three years now, we, uh, um, we developed with the Linux Foundation a line for uh, um, open source for energy in order to try to develop some commons, some bricks that, that can accelerate the energy transition, make it a more efficiency. Uh, on another side, and it's a, a quite new uh, initiative, as I said, even if now I feel confident to say uh, uh, 
uh, will it possible, for example, to operate a grid based on 100% renewable, for example, in 2050? Ten years ago, the answer was not so obvious. Now I can say, uh, okay, I can do it. We have the technology. But the problem is that's not the right technology because some of them are based on non-renewable resources. So we, uh, we want to develop the use of biomimicry so to be inspired by nature in order to develop new products, new solutions that are recyclable, renewable, mm. and not based on extraction. But we cannot do that alone. And so we launched an initiative we call Biomimicry for Energy, with industrial, to see how we can organize uh, a governance, a common governance to share funding and then to work with academics to develop some common bricks then can be used by the industrial to make some different product, but uh, how we can start this move, in fact. And so it's the way we try to act, to organize some spaces where we can cooperate and to open some spaces where competition can be the motor, in fact, for, uh, for efficiency. It's the way that we try to, uh, uh, to, to act, because as it has been said, uh, uh, by some other uh, contributors. In fact, it's no time for analysis to exchange information. It's time for act, and everybody can act. Companies have their responsibilities. Companies have a social responsibilities, which is not only to provide profitability. What will be the sense to be the leader in a crashed world? Excellent. It's, quite, it's just too good to, believe, uh, to be true to, you know, uh, very enlightened private sector people um, and talking about profit in the way that one would never imagine. So congratulations to you two. I just hope you can get others around, around the table in Europe to act in a similar way. No, I genuinely mean that because it's, it's rare to have um, such a uh, sophisticated but also um, socially just approach um, that... Looks, looks, looks in the eye of profit as being something which you can work with, not necessarily just in terms of increase, uh, increased growth, um, but you can make profit work in different ways. That's, uh, that's very, very heartening. Um, I'll, I know what you, wanted, what did you, what you wanted to come in, but I want to see if there's any... Re I recognise it's quite hot down there. Is that the case? People are saying that it's really far too warm. Is it pulling you to sleep? I hope it's not. Is it? Okay, so we must do something about the temperature if we can. But because uh, I recognise the fact that you, you, you two have already had a crack at this, I want to get more people from over there to make sure you're, you're wake, woken up. But go on, you, you have a just a number of us have made the point about involving local communities and maybe an example of how it can work and how it can't. Um, mm. I was recently in Korea on a large international renewable energy conference. And one of the surprising things that came out was the degree of public opposition to siting of wind turbines, including offshore turbines, which are usually not a problem. Fishermen were opposed. And it turned out that the main problem was that nobody ever consults local communities about the siting. And you, if you compare that to Denmark, where local communities are offered the option of of becoming owners of, of wind turbines. And so they look with pride at, at the wind turbine in their neighborhood and, and consider it, it part of a, of a future they want to be a part of. Um, and, and even small things, um, in, in Denmark when, when Vestas, um, and maybe this is because it had its, 
its origins in agricultural machinery. But when it came time to start erecting, or they started to erect more wind turbines, they went around and did community surveys on what color the towers should be. Mm. Because, I mean, it seems so common sense, but if they're too white, they look unnatural. And nobody really wants an orange one or a blue one or something that looks like an amusement park. But consulting with local residents about what color of the thing that would be in their neighborhood turned out to be very important in winning local acceptance. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's such common sense. It's such common sense that if you're, if you're going to do something, but it's, it's unfortunate that policymakers um, apparently lose common sense when, they, when they're thinking about these things. It's, it's really, quite, uh, uh, really quite interesting. Um, ah, and yourself. So we have two. So gentleman there yeah, with the glasses, say who you are, and the gentleman here with the glasses. And it would be great to have some women also, please. Um, uh, hello, I'm Sebastian Gonzato from the KU Leuven. I just wanted to ask, Engie sold their coal-fired power plants, so do you think it's justifiable to say you cut emissions instead of just shifting them to some other company? Okay, before you answer, can you hold on to that question because I have to finish at midday, so I want to group all of this so that we can finish on time. There was a lady at the back, is that right? Was there? No? The gentleman there, then I'll, I'll bring yourself in. Hello, thank you. Uh, my name is Jakovljevich. I'm from uh, Energy Efficiency Industrial Process, which is Association for Industrial Energy Efficiency Users. So, coming from a little bit different angle, you know, uh -huh. here we're talking about energy justice, but also about companies. But just a quick two points. Uh, firstly, uh, what we notice, you know, with our companies is that uh, it's still the, the change comes, you know, basically from the people. Even within the companies, you know, people in the in the in the role of the decision. So, uh, lots of things happening because of the generational change, and uh, and people are perceiving things differently. But secondly, you know, I think gentleman earlier made a point, and you know, something I want to bring up. You know, the main opportunity for energy efficiency in industry is basically electrification. So, I think you know, we, we this is something you know that we can we can really kind of like you know, should, always important you know to raise up. Okay. Raise up, so just make that point again. We ought to be uh, about electrification you know, in the previous uh, the session, you know. But I think it was kind of a little bit of a lost opportunity here uh -huh. uh, for, for uh, industrial energy efficiency. Uh, that uh, it's good, you know, to raise up an uh, issue that electrification it contributes to the, contri uh, con the, to the competitiveness, but also contributes to the flexibility and also contributes to the basically bringing like renewables into the industrial into the mix. So, Absolutely, uh, yep. gentlemen here. Alacante Foundation for the Urban Environment. My question is to Olivier. As you are in a systems of transport nationally, how can you help international transfers of electricity? Because we know very often there are electricity producers at each side of the border and they don't speak to each other or cooperate because there is just a little bit of infrastructure missing. How can you, as national operator, help uh, the uh, international uh, transmission of electricity? Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's, let's kick off with you, Olivier, on that, and I'll come back, back to yourself, Gilles. In answering that question, um, it would be really good for you to understand, from your perspective, what do you want from the new mandate to make the grid much more friendly, both to greening, but also um, transnational activity? 
for the benefit of the consumer? So, I think that the answer is uh, what I explained. Even if you are a national operator, so in fact we open uh, different spaces of cooperation with our colleagues from other countries, and we have some common work, in fact, uh, common studies to, uh, to, to, to develop uh, new facilities, in fact, to increase the exchanges. So, uh, and we have a lot of projects, in fact, to develop uh, uh, interconnectors between the, uh, between the countries. On the other side, we try also to collaborate, in fact, in uh, more, for example, for R&D, in order to develop more eco-friendly solution, in fact, also for the, for the development of uh, those uh, uh, facilities in the future. So I think that uh, we in Europe have member states under Europe, which is a space where we can organize the, um, the cooperation between the, the different uh, member states. And the TSOs are one of the uh, stakeholders of, of that party and we are uh, fully involved in, in uh, NSOE and many other uh, cooperation at the European level. And uh, for example, when I explained the, 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 the initiative uh, we launched for uh, biomimicry for energy in France, we also have different rendezvous to share this with some of European colleagues, so that to try to to have a, a wider area of cooperation to develop those uh, initiatives on an approach. But is it happening fast enough and what's the role of the EU in this? Uh, no, it's never... Because in terms of the grid, the grid is still a huge complicated thing. It's never thing. fast enough. It's never fast enough. So, uh, but what we can expect also from the, uh, the, the new commission, in fact, mm. is to... Because what we need also is to align, in fact, the... Um, the strategy of the industrials uh, and also what could be the public support in fact to, to, to accelerate and for example when I spoke about uh, that we strongly believe in the potential of biomimicry we also have to align some funding of this type of research and to uh, encourage also the development of uh, new formation in that field and so on. And so it is common work between the uh, operators, between uh, suppliers and, uh, uh, and also the political uh, level, in fact. Please do, then I'll turn to Jill. And I want to say that, according to my opinion, we have enough legislation. The only thing that we need is implementation coming from the member states. In terms of the grid? In, in terms of the grid, yes. In terms of the electric, electric market, it, it's impossible to understand, but the, the legislation is full. <laughs> the implementation is lacking. That's interesting. Okay. Um, but it does make me think that uh, what's coming through loud and clear in both these, the first and the second, is that in the development of the EU's approach to industrial policy, one hope it's going to be green and innovation-based, because otherwise we're going to be a loser. Over to you. No, so thank you for the question because it's direct. Um, I think that uh, you're true. Um, it's not um, easy to go out from coal for a company like Engie. Uh, we had for each single uh, coal dismissal uh, a big dilemma. Should we sell it? Should we stop it? Should we transform it? And it was uh, one of the big topics we had to face in the last three years. Sometimes we cannot just close it, because as was explained in the previous panel, the country needs it. Uh, so it's a kind of uh, no choice, and we wanted to go fast. So for that, 
um, we, we, we sold our units. Some we, we closed, like Hazelwood, for example. We anticipated the closure of the, of the power plant in, in Australia because with the authority, we, we had a good conversation in order to see the future coming out. Some we are working hard because we have still a, a few of them that we want to, to remove from our portfolio to see how we can transform them. Um, so that's, that's um, we, we, we have less than 4% I think now, but this is still a, an issue for them and we are working hard on that. And, and I think this is a big topic. But the question then is, where do we want to put our energy? Where can we really make the difference? We believe that now uh, in the new strategy of the group, we really want to focus on that growth engines that we defined in order to focus our management and our leadership. So uh, I think this is uh, an important point and that's why uh, uh, you're right, we couldn't say that it's purely uh, a decrease net uh, CO2 emission and, and I should have mentioned that before, uh, even if part of that is, because we stopped uh, part of the portfolio. And it's not on, this uh, decrease is not only about coal, by the way, but we kept in our portfolio all the businesses that we could truly believe we can move to uh, zero carbon uh, on, the, on the longer run. So that's... Uh, uh, an untouchable point. If I may, I just want to add something because I, I want to say that 20 years ago, when I was in the same kind of, uh, you know, with this curve, uh, I think that the, there was more or less the, the same uh, kind of uh, statement. We were not going fast enough. Uh, uh, and, and I think that there was no guts. It was purely rational. Here, what I feel, in, in the, including in the assembly, maybe more than in the panelists, I feel more guts coming about the urgency to act. Mm. I want to, to share that. that, that. Mm. And I think that I want to say that... Also this, if I may, the science has improved. Science and, has improved. And our lived experience has changed. It's, it's true, it's true. But, but I think that, that, that the, the statements are not very different in, in, no, in a way. No, indeed. But I think that what you said, uh, Olivier, about um, the, the fact that uh, there is partnerships, I think that there is no limit between... Uh, uh, the industrialist, the citizen, the, the voters, etc. I am a citizen, I am a voter, I am an, an activist, I am an industrialist. I, and you said it's not easy to, to decrease your own CO2 footprint in, in Brussels. I don't agree. Mm. I, am, I live in Brussels, I can decrease my CO2 footprint. So I think that the, the, the barriers between the different stakeholders, we really need to, 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 to cut that and to put more guts in what we believe. And I think we are still very far from the level of energy and of change that uh, we need to, to be at the scale of the change that we have in front of us. We, we have no choice. And my, my comment wasn't an anti-Brussels comment, I assure you. I wasn't actually using me as an example. I mean, actually, you, I, I live in saint jean I, I don't know where I would go to get different forms of energy or, um, or trying to make my, my place much more energy efficient, for example. But I'm actually thinking about poor households. You go down a kilometer, half a kilometer away from me, you've got the, the biggest bit of urban deprivation and poverty. And I'm not sure how those, 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 those folks are accessing the kind of thing that you're talking about, because I don't think it's, it's available there. And on, the, on that, really, for me, let's not forget, there's one you know, uh, really depressing fact that nearly 50 million, just over 50 million households in Europe are suffering some form of energy poverty. That's the reality when you're thinking about what, you're, what, what we're all saying. I must react. Please do. <laughs> you ask us to disagree. Yes. I live in Anderlecht, which is not a rich area, and, and I think that it's not costly 
to save CO2, you don't, I mean, uh, you, you can do some basic things, you rethink the way you use the energy. Of course, there are some measures, uh, but you can find some very easy way also to, to renew, to find, so, just to, to but I, I just want to, to exactly what, what you said, Mr., saying that we need to, not to do antagonists between both, because I think that even the first criteria to kill uh, energy poverty is energy efficiency. Is so, 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 so it's not contradictory, and I think that uh, we can do many things already today, uh, and, and even if we can, of course, improve the offers of the infrastructures of the market, but uh, including in, in poor sure. areas. I suppose, I mean, we won't flog a dead horse, but, and we're not going to necessarily agree on this, but I think we are uh, not necessarily in disagreement. I'm not talking about you as a socio-economic group. You're not the demographic, you're not the, the group I'm talking about. I'm talking about those who are the poorest uh, with very little awareness of having the sense of self-agency to go somewhere or to find stuff. That requires municipalities to reach into those poor areas to do things differently. Of course you're going to know where to go. You're going to, you're, of course you're, not, you're going to know what, what to do. I'm talking about you know, the very poor Moroccan, Turkish, uh, Pakistani, Bangladeshi communities you've got here that haven't got a Scooby about what to do, uh, and no one is reaching out to me to say, actually, this is how you might become more energy efficient. You wanted to come in, but then I'm going to close. Uh, very briefly, yes. On energy efficiency issue, it is the responsibility of the local authorities. Indeed. To show the way, and allow me to use a success story coming from the previous Juncker plan. In Nil, in Paris, they finally reconstruct more than 4,000 small apartments in a very pure Indeed. neighborhood. And Indeed. finally, they, they create a success story giving more than 6,000 jobs. So it is important to go ahead Indeed. with the local authorities. Thank you. No, no, you're quite right. Very briefly. Energy efficiency in buildings, a, a great potential for almost every city in Europe. Indeed, including this one. The heating was switched off over an hour ago, I was informed. But, you know, there you go. How are you going to transform this, this beauty? Um, Yes, absolutely. Um, so I just wanted to raise one other point that hasn't come out so strongly yet. Um, that uh, you know, we're, still, we're still very actively funding uh, fossil fuels. I mean, I think that this needs to be you know, absolutely top of the agenda, is, is, uh, is getting rid of, of subsidies and also you know, getting, getting our, like, the huge amount of European money um, that's, that's, uh, that's still funding fossil fuels. And I think you know, having the COP you know, in the end in, uh, in Spain is a good opportunity for... for um, you know, for Europe to be able to um, to help drive the agenda on some of these on some of these issues as well. Mm -hmm. There's no point in talking about you know how we um, how we transform how we how we compensate if at the same time we're we're actively undermining our, our own progress and that just you know just needs to be something that's said. And obviously there's a there's a tremendous amount of money out there if we you know if we deploy it on the on the things that are that are most necessary. And so I think that there's you know there's it's been very encouraging to hear from everybody you know that we that we really can work um, together and across across sectors, across, uh, you know, classes and Indeed. so on, to find, to find solutions. And I do think that, um, um, you know, that, that, that really turbocharging this sort of uh, uh, societal conversation is absolutely what's needed. Because the question can't be whether we do it, um, it needs to be how. How, absolutely. Thank you. And I believe there was, there was a question right at the back, but have you given up? I think you have, haven't you? So I've run out of time anyway. I do apologize for having not taken you earlier. Um, thank you, uh, thank you all very much. That's been really good. Uh, uh, both, you know, it's, it's enlightening, as I said, you know, to have a panel that's so cross-sectoral, but in, in, in much in much in agreement about what we, need, what we need to do. So let's thank our panel in the usual manner. Thank you very much. And...
on the, on the point that you were making, Stephanie, about our investment in fossil fuel, the next session, so we've dealt with you know, what we need to do in terms of ambition. We've now looked at transition and competitiveness. Our last session's about money and how do we get green money uh, moving. So uh, do stay for that because we'll talk about what we do around that. Thank you very much.